Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 119. We'll pick up in verse 81, the cough section of 119, 81 through 88. Remember, as I read and as you listen and follow along, this is the word of God. Psalm 119. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Father, once again, we praise you for your word. Uh, Please open our ears to it even now in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the weekly challenges I had when I was in serving regularly in pastoral ministry was that for two of the congregations I served, At some point during the week, usually it was around Thursday or Friday, it it dawned on me that not only did I have to prepare what I was going to preach on Sunday, but I also had to come up with a title for the sermon. And I know many pastors who avoid this altogether. I would love to have avoided it altogether, and in some cases I did avoid it, but it was always a challenge because coming up with a title that encapsulates the whole scope and and meaning and sweep of a given passage of Scripture always feels a little reductionistic. It, It feels like you're oversimplifying or you're trying to be overly clever and catchy when in reality the 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 text itself may in fact be be weighty and 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 broad and deep nonetheless i encountered something when looking at this text that i think encapsulates about as clearly as uh, anything could the teaching and the context of psalm 119 81 to 88 it was really something taken from a sentence that Charles Spurgeon wrote when he was reflecting on the whole of this. He goes verse by verse through it, but when he was reflecting on the whole, he said this, he wrote this, that this is the psalmist in extremis. Uh, This is the psalmist, in other words, at the end of the line, at the farthest reach or at the point of death. And that's really what you see in this text. There are moments in Psalm 119, where the psalmist appears to be on the brink of falling apart, on the brink of perhaps exhaustion or despair or persecution. But this entire section, all of these verses, are filled with that kind of sense that that the backdrop of all of this is that the psalmist is at the point of death. He's at the farthest reaches. He's gone about as far as he can go. He is, as one commentator puts it, in the lowest condition of anguish and depression. Now, as we'll see when we look at this, he is at this point because he is responding to two basic realities. And they're broken down for us in the text. 
And before we get to these basic realities that will really provide the, the structure or the framework, the skeleton uh, of this text, I want to make a comment about the structure uh, of this in general. Of course, you know, in the context of Psalm 119, this is an acrostic. And so all of the lines begin with the letter cough in this case. But there's something else going on, too. There's a way in which the psalmist has structured this particular section that's worth noting. And it helps us break down the two major headings. It helps us break down the two major realities that are staring him in the face that have brought him to this point. So the structure is this. We see in verses uh, 81 and 82, and then at the end in verse 87, that the psalmist uses a particular Hebrew word. In this case, he uses the word kala, which in 81 and 82 is translated in the ESV, longs for or long for. And then in 87, it's translated as made an end of. Now, now in English, it wouldn't it wouldn't be obvious that that he's using the same Hebrew word in both cases. But in fact, he is. I think the translation is a good one, but you need to understand the play on words. And so the beginning and the end of this section are parallel intentionally. So there's a verbal parallel there that the psalmist is is meant uh, meaning for us to hear. And then in the middle there's a, a key word that he uses as well. And this is in 83 and 84 and 85 and 86. And it's the word translated persecute, radosh. It's this, uh, it, it, you see it in, in 84, when will you judge those who persecute me? And then in 86, they persecute me with falsehood, help me. This has led most commentators to realize that we're dealing with a kind of broad chiastic structure here. The beginning and the end deal with the same basic reality. And then the center, this 84 through 86 section, deal with yet another reality, both of which have pushed the psalmist to the limit, both of which have taken him to the end, to the point of death in extremis. Well, I want to look at the center section first, because this reality is probably the one that if you observed the psalmist, if you were there when under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote and reflected on these things, this is what you would see of his circumstances. And, and that deals with the, the reality, this first reality, beginning in verse 84, which is the reality of persecution. Uh, this reality of persecution, and I, and I mentioned already that in 84, he, he uses the term persecute, and in 86, he uses the term persecute as well. But what we, what we see quite clearly is that the psalmist was facing the reality of persecution. He was being persecuted, not because he had done something wrong, but actually because he obeyed the Lord's word, because he believed in the Lord's commands, and because the people who didn't, the people who had no concern for the Lord's commands, wanted to trap him. What, is, what do the persecutors do? Well, look at verse 85. He says the persecutors, he calls them the insolent in the ESV. It's really the word for proud. The proud or insolent have dug pitfalls for me. The first thing he sees is that part of the persecution, part of the way the persecution was working out, is that he was surrounded by all these traps. He, he knew that if he took a step in one direction or in another direction, these proud men, these insolent men, these men who were against him, 
had set it up so that whichever way he turned, he would be liable to fall into their trap. He had to be very careful where he stepped. He had to be very careful, in this case particularly, of what he said. And we know that it has to do with uh, things that are said, because in verse 86, we're, we have the persecution described even more vividly. Not only have the persecutors, as it were, dug pits around him, but the persecutors, it says, persecute me, verse 86, with falsehood. Now, it would be bad enough to imagine in a physical sense being surrounded by landmines. You didn't know where you would step that would blow up in your face. You, you wouldn't know where you could go next. But, but this is actually worse than that because he's not talking about physical pits or physical landmines. He's actually talking about the fact that they've made up all these lies about him. There's this web of lies that are surrounding him. And he realizes that no matter how he responds, no matter which direction he seeks to go, no matter how he tries to answer or not answer, the, the falsehood will persist. It's much easier to endure merely physical pain than to endure this kind of thing. They were attacking his reputation, the very core of his being. They were doing so with lies, but the lies weren't obvious to all those around him. So his reputation was at stake, and he realized he was surrounded by pits. You know, this is something that many, many Christians have faced throughout history, and certainly many Christians face today. Just this past weekend, I was reminded of this. So I was emailing back and forth with a minister who is undergoing some significant slander. And, and one of the things that came out in our exchange was that this is the kind of thing that's happening more and more. In fact, later on, someone else who was part of the conversation sent me a long excerpt from a recent book that was written that essentially said, you need to expect this kind of slander. It's going to happen to a greater and greater degree in the future. In other words, what the, what the paragraph that was sent to me said and what experience, I think, teaches us is that as Christians, as faithful Christians, and particularly as faithful Christian ministers, there is a sense in which we have a kind of target on our backs. And we can get ourselves into plenty of trouble, but sometimes through no fault of our own, uh, things are said about us, uh, falsehoods, lies twisting and distortions of things we've said that if understood out of or if taken out of context would would mean something entirely different from what we sought to convey that's the kind of thing that happens all the time and it happens now in an increasing measure because of the anonymity provided by by those on the internet who can make any kind of accusation they don't have to back it up and if it's proven wrong it doesn't matter to them this is the kind of thing the psalmist faced all the way back in his day, they persecute me with falsehood. The proud have dug, dug pitfalls for me. Now, one of the things I think that we can immediately say then by way of application is this, that you read through Psalm 119. And, I've said, and I said at the beginning when we started our study of Psalm 19 that Psalm 119 really gives us a, a clear and full-orbed picture of what it means to live a godly life, of what we, we call experimental Calvinism, of what that actually looks like. And what we see here in this section is that in the midst of that desire to live a godly life, 
Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. We shouldn't be surprised when these kinds of things happen to us. We shouldn't be shocked that we, like the psalmist, may have things said against us, falsehoods. We may feel as if we're trapped. We can't answer the uh, accusation, but then again, our silence seems to reinforce the premises of the accusation. Actually, that kind of thing is not abnormal. That kind of thing is exactly what the Bible tells us often happens to the people of God. So there's a sense in which it sets our expectations for us. You know, you look at the history of the early church, you read through the pages of the book of Acts, and you look at the apostles, you look at Peter or John or Paul or or, or even Stephen, that first deacon, that first martyr. What, what precipitated much of their persecution was actually slander about things they were teaching. There's no question they were teaching things that people objected to, but very often it was lies about what they were teaching that actually got them into trouble. Remember, it was a lie about what the Apostle Paul had done in the temple, bringing a Gentile in, that actually drew the ire of his Jewish accusers. It was a lie about what Stephen was teaching that led to his stoning, his martyrdom. And that's, again, part of the normal pattern of the history of the church. Yes, there are things that we say that will perhaps lead to persecution, but very often it's a falsehood. And, and of course, the greatest example that we see of this, and we see it again and again on the pages of the Gospels, is the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was slandered more than he was. When you and I are slandered, when falsehoods are said against us, as painful as that may be, we can say to ourselves, well, that may not be true. In fact, that's not true. But the reality is I deserve at least that bad a reputation if everyone knew all that I had ever said and done. So there's a sense in which we can retreat to the fact that we, we do deserve criticism, even if that particular falsehood is not true. But that couldn't be said of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every falsehood against him was not only a sin against the Lord and a sin against the truth, but in this case, none of it was deserved. Because no rightful accusation of sin, no rightful accusation of any wrongdoing could ever be leveled against the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet it happened again and again. Even, even leading up to his crucifixion, we see that essentially, of course, the Jewish leaders were opposed to him and the Romans were opposed to him for their own reasons. But, but essentially what he was crucified for was a lie. It was a false charge. And yet we see that this happened and led to his crucifixion in the plan of God. Man of sorrows acquainted with much grief. He knew what it was to say these words in verse 86. They persecute me with falsehood. The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. I think it's also worth noting in this center section when we're discussing the reality of persecution, the character of the persecutors. I mentioned already that the way they're referred to in verse 85 is insolent, but really it's just the word for proud. These are, these are proud people at their heart. Oh, they may act as if they're being humble. They may act as if they're just standing up for the truth. 
But the reality is in their hearts, they're, they're proud, they're lifted up. And we see as well their pride manifested in a particular way again in verse 85, because at the end of verse 85, not only does it call them proud, but it says this, they do not live according to your law. These people who persecute this man of God, the people who persecute and falsely accuse Christians even today, do so, number one, out of their own pride, and number two, out of their inattention, their lack of concern for God's law. Well, well, why is that specifically? Well, for one thing, we could say this, that these insolent who have dug pitfalls have no concern whatsoever for even the most basic implications of the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness. You remember, of course, how our catechism describes the duties required in the ninth commandment. I'll read a few of them to you just by way of reminder so that you can see how the opposite is played out in these verses. The duties required in the ninth commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man, the good name of, name of our neighbor, as well as our own, appearing and standing for the truth and from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in all other things whatsoever, a charitable esteem of our neighbors and on and on it goes. And we see from that description exactly why the psalmist can say these these proud people, they, they don't care about your law at all. They'll make up anything. They'll believe the worst. They'll develop accusations just to make an end to me. So what's the psalmist's response to the reality of persecution? Well, he offers a response that I think is a model to us. The first thing we can see in his response is in verse 84, the psalmist Praise to the Lord. Uh, that's the first thing we could note, that the psalmist doesn't first and foremost lash out at these people who have made up deceitful lies. He's not complaining. He's not, he's not bemoaning his circumstances. What he is doing, though, is he's crying out to the Lord for justice. And specifically, that's what he says in verse 84. Not only, Lord, help me, which he says in verse 86, but in verse 84, when will you judge those who persecute me. What the psalmist does is he prays, and he prays that the Lord would be the judge of these persecutors. Not primarily drawing the sword here, although there might be a time and a place where the psalmist would do this, but he's going to the Lord in prayer. We see this again and again through the psalms. I think these psalms are often troubling to us, but they're here, and they're here for a reason. But we look at Psalm 5, or Psalm 6, or Psalm 35, or Psalm 69, or we look at Jesus in Matthew 23, where he declared with great clarity a woe on the false teachers who had twisted the truth. Or you think about Paul in Galatians 1, where he goes so far as to say, if anyone preaches a gospel, delivers a gospel different from the one which you have heard, he's to be accursed. You think about the persecuted saints in Revelation 6, who make much the same cry that the psalmist makes here in Psalm 84. How long and when will you judge those who persecute? Well, what does 
the Lord teaches. The Lord teaches us that it's appropriate to cry out to him for this kind of justice because he is the just judge. In fact, Peter, in his letter to persecuted Christians, says that God who judges justly is the one to whom you look for vindication. Or what Paul says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord's very clear about this. We're not to be like that man who's whose uh, life is recorded for us in Genesis 4, Lamech, who says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. We're not to join in with the online mob to get back at those people who are deceitful. We're not to say, they lied about me, so who cares what happens to them? I'll receive any bad report against the people who have deceived others regarding me. No, 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 that's not, that's not what the Bible teaches, and that's not what the psalmist does. Psalmist goes before the Lord. He pours out his heart to the Lord. He does ask the Lord for justice, for judgment, the kind of judgment that only the Lord can provide. You remember how the Apostle Peter ends his letter to these ones who are suffering greatly. Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered for a little while, Peter says, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And you see, that's what the psalmist is crying out for in verse 86. In verse 84, he cries out for justice. In verse 86, in one sense, it's more of a plaintive cry, help me, Lord. And he knows that his help and his salvation, his confirmation, restoration, strengthening, and establishing, as Peter puts it, is all in the hands of the Lord. Even if he could have answered his critics, even if he could have found a way to cleverly evade their falsehoods and get around the pits that they had dug for him, his ultimate source of vindication, his ultimate confidence and hope was in the Lord and what the Lord would do, bringing about justice and saving him. As we think about this particular section, the reality of persecution We need to ask ourselves some difficult questions. Do you you resemble the slanderer in this case or the one being slandered? The psalmist is speaking from the standpoint of being persecuted. So it's an odd question to put to you based on this text, but I think it has to be said, has to be asked. As this description of the persecutor is given, does that describe you? in your interactions with others? Are these the kinds of things you entertain in your own heart or instigate in your own words? And then if you are yourself being slandered, how do you respond to the slander of those who care nothing for God's law? The psalmist gives us a clear model here. You cry out to God for justice. You cry out to God and look to him for your help. Paul says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And to the contrary, Paul goes on to say, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We live in an evil age. Well, psalmist lived in an evil age as well. But we are not to be overcome by this evil, this evil of persecution, this evil of slander, this evil of lies and insinuations. Or rather, we overcome evil with good. What's the second reality? The second reality is one that wouldn't have been visible if you knew the psalmist unless you knew him well. But I would argue that the second reality, which is touched on at the beginning of this section and at the end in those those uh, those uh, sections that, that 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 frame everything, the, that reality might have been as painful, if not more painful, than the reality of persecution. And this is the reality of what the psalmist calls spiritual longing. Look at what he says in verse eighty-one. This sets the stage for everything to follow. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. I want to draw your attention to the imagery that he uses because it's vivid imagery in verse 83. How does he describe spiritual longing? How does he describe his own inner life as it's expressed even on his countenance? Well, look what he says. I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. That's an obscure phrase. It's not a phrase that we use today to describe ourselves. It may not even be a phrase that we understand very well, but the 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 imagery uh, makes sense when you understand it. it th- these leather wineskins that would be used for for holding liquid after they were emptied were were hung up in the rafters or in the top of the tent. And, and and the thing about being hung up in the top of the tent was they would be susceptible to all the smoke. You'd have a fire inside. You'd have a fire inside the building. You'd have these these leather wineskins that were just emptied out there in the rafters, and they'd be filled with smoke and blackened. And the psalmist is saying, that that's essentially what my, what my face has become. You know, I, 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 I've, I, my face has become so filled with sorrow, so, so dark and dismal. My brow is so furrowed that that, that, that gives a picture of my whole life. The psalmist Regular facial expression, the regular way in which he even saw himself was was changed because of how bad it had gotten. This is the effect of deep and prolonged grief and sorrow. You know, perhaps you've had this experience where you see someone you know and you see their face, and immediately when they walk in the room, you know that something's wrong. Or perhaps if you haven't seen them for some time, you can tell that not only is something wrong in the immediate moment, but but they haven't been doing well for a long time. And it's obvious to you. The psalmist says that's in an extreme way what I'm feeling in myself. I've become like a wineskin in the smoke. Charles Spurgeon, again, I'll quote from him, puts it well. He says, the psalmist's face through sorrow had become dark and dismal, furrowed as to have lost its natural moisture and to have become like a skin dried and tanned. His character had been smoked with slander and his mind parched with persecution. That's vividly put, isn't it? That's what the psalmist is experiencing. This isn't a momentary light thing. This isn't something small. 
This is something prolonged that had seeped into his bones and come out in his face so that he can describe himself as one like a wineskin in the smoke. Well, what does he mean by this very vivid description? Well, again, he says, my soul longs in verse 81, or better yet, my soul faints. Thomas Manton reflected on this and said, when he sinketh under the burden of a grievous, tedious, or long affliction, then he is said to faint. When all the reasons and grounds of his comfort are quite spent and he can hold out no longer. That's what the psalmist is experiencing. And he he says that he's looked to the comfort that God can provide. In verse 82, he says, I've, I've been longing for your promise to be fulfilled. But but now I have to ask the question, when will you comfort me? I I keep looking. I I keep waking up in the morning and waiting to see if today's the day when you'll vindicate me. If today's the day when you'll actually turn my sorrow into joy. And, And what I find day after day as I wake up and go to sleep and wake up again and go to sleep again is the same thing is repeated over and over again. Great sorrow. And I can only cry out, when will you comfort me? There's a sense in which, although the psalmist is going through something peculiar, something that we would say is extreme, nonetheless, there is a sense in which that cry in verse 82 really is the cry of all those believers on this side of the second coming. Isn't, Isn't this what Hebrews 11 tells us about the nature of faith? Hebrews 11, after listing out all of these men and women of faith, says they, these all died in faith, not having received what was promised. And at the end, he summarizes this way. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And there is that sense in the Christian life, certainly in the midst of suffering and persecution and toil and turmoil. But but even in the regular stuff of life, we are waiting. We are living between promise and fulfillment. We are we are looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises. What we are asking in an ultimate sense, when will you comfort me? So what does he trust in in the midst of that? This is instructive for us today. Well, he trusts, first of all, in God's word. He says this in verse 81, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. He says in verse 82, my eyes long for your promise. Another reference to the word of God. He says in verse 86, all your commandments are sure. In the midst of instability, there is something solid and it's your commandments. And he says in verse 87, they've almost made an end of me on the earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. And then he ends with, In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. The psalmist, in the midst of these two great realities that are terrorizing him, that have driven him to the brink, hopes in the word of God. He looks to the word of God for instruction. You want to know what to do when you're at the end of your rope, when you feel as if you can't withstand anymore, when you're beset by temptation or overcome by worry. Or even in the midst of persecution, what do you do? You look to the the scriptures. You look to the word of God. That's what the psalmist does. That's what Jesus does. 
know that on the cross, we, we know this well. Jesus is reflecting on the word of God. The words out of his mouth are very often the words of Scripture directly. We know that when he's temp- tempted in the wilderness, what does he come back to over and over again? He's quoting from Deuteronomy as Satan tempts him. The word of God is to be our strength. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. His word is light and life. It's more precious than anything else we could possess in this life. And in looking to the word of God, of course, what we're really doing is we're looking to God himself. Because when we look at God's word, we're we're doing so not just because it's instructive, not just because it's enlightening, not just because it provides comfort to us, but because it's God's instruction. It's God's comfort. It's God's light. We're leaning on God in and through his word. You know, there's a wonderful illustration of this in Isaiah 37. Hezekiah, the king, as you know, receives this message conveying the king of Assyria's intention against him. And then the text says this, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, this great, terrible news. He receives the letter, he read it, and then what does he do? He went up to the house of the Lord, spread it before the Lord. And prayed before the Lord. And then what does he do? He he receives instruction from the prophet of the Lord. He leans on God in prayer. He looks to God and God's word for instruction. This is how the Lord comforts us during this time. This is how we exercise our faith during times like this. I would urge you, if you are struggling today, whether your struggle fits neatly into the description of the psalmist's struggle, or perhaps your struggle is something somewhat different from this, but whatever your struggle is, I would, I would urge you today to look to the Word of God for comfort, to look to the Word of God for strength, to look to the Word of God for instruction before and above looking to anyone or anything else. You know, that's the command we're given in Scripture. That's the instruction we're given here. If you're struggling, receive consolation from this word. There's a second category we might introduce here, though, because he is looking to the word of God and in so doing is looking to God himself. But we might also say this because of the specific terms that the psalmist uses, that that he's looking not only to the word of God, but he's looking to God's salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why do I say that? Well, he begins and ends with this note of salvation. Verse 81, my soul longs for your salvation, but perhaps more vividly, verse 88, where he declares what it is that he's looking to for life. In your steadfast love, give me life. Now, we've seen this term before, and so by now, I think you can spot it even in the English translation. This is the, this is the Hebrew word chesed, which refers to covenant love, covenant faithfulness. What's he looking to in the midst of these terrible realities of life? He's looking to God's new covenant promises, the promises ultimately of salvation. You know, of course, that God promised in the Old Testament, and he brings this to fruition in the new. This covenant love, this pouring out of his spirit, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more, Jeremiah says when prophesying this new covenant. And in in, in framing that covenant the way he does, he's echoing the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 30. 
Of course, you know this well, but the writer to Hebrews expands on this, describes how that is brought to bear to us today. And he says, he describes the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and says, by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Later, the author of Hebrews calls the atoning blood of Christ, the blood of the eternal covenant. And you know all these things, but the question is, in the midst of suffering, are these the things you look to? You look to the word of God, you look to the covenant promises of God. Are these the things that you look to in extremis? Is this what you point others to so that you could actually declare and you actually do declare in your interactions with others who are suffering and, and, and as you preach to yourself when you're suffering? that this is, this is my only comfort in life and in death, that I'm not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's given us everything we need for life and godliness, even in the worst of circumstances, because he's given us his word and he's given us the covenant promises in and through his son, Jesus Christ. And the psalmist knows this, and he knows that in the context of God's chesed, in the context of his steadfast love that gives life, which is the only kind of life to which he can look. He knows this life will lead to him being able to continue to keep the testimonies of God's word. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you again for your word, for its clarity, for its power, for the, for the promises that attend to its reading and preaching. Please, Lord, by your spirit, confirm these things in our hearts and change us into the image of Christ. May we look to you for our comfort, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.